I don't come from a very wealthy family and I always kind of enjoyed seeing wealthy families where the father would pass along something to the kid and my dad passed along like culture and a lot of great things but I always thought it was cool to pass along like a watch with an engraving to your kid in the future uh, and I wanted to be able to do that and to motivate my future kids to do some great things and just build sort of a tradition and family heritage. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Tim Grasson, who sold his company Candy Banners for around five times EBITDA. But before I tell you about Tim, I just want to shout out Leopold Grasson, who recommended Tim to be a guest via our LinkedIn pages. So if you don't follow us on LinkedIn, I'd highly encourage it. I will share mine and John's profiles in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com, where there you're going to find everything referenced in today's episode, including the official press release and definitions for some of the more technical terms that are used during today's podcast. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Tim, who in 2014 founded Candy Banners, which designs ads that show up kind of along the top, bottom, and sides of a website. Now, by 2020, he had built the business to around seven figures when he was approached by a client to acquire his company. A year later, he had signed the deal to sell his company Candy Banners to Native Touch for around five times EBITDA. Here to share with you the full story is Tim Grasson. Enjoy. Tim Grasson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. Nice to be here. Candy Banners has to be the coolest name for a company. What on earth did Candy Banners do? So it is a cool name and it has a really interesting backstory. Uh, which we may or may not get into, but basically what we did were digital banners. So we would be a shop that helped ad agencies with their digital needs, mostly banners. So all the ad banners you would see online, we would help design, develop, animate, all of that good stuff. Uh, we started branching out into various other things later on, but that's the original concept and what we focused on. And did you sell to marketing advertising agencies who in turn then sold it on to their clients or did you go directly to the brand? Well, we tried to go direct to brand, but unfortunately, the brands that do have the marketing budgets for these types of banners typically have their own agencies and it's hard to reach them directly. So we were quite fortunate to already have a network of ad agencies in Toronto and in New York and other cities in North America that trusted us with that type of work and where we were able to make a decent enough margin to you know, keep those relationships going as opposed to going direct to brand. And what was the business model? Like, how did you charge for your services? So it was hourly based technically, but we had packages. We knew a certain set of banners, depending on the complexity of animation and design, would cost X or Y. Uh, typically, we tried to bring these agencies on retainer because they have multiple clients that have you know, numerous needs. So in time, we were trying to make it so that we'd get consistent work from these agencies. Uh, it wasn't always the case and it was quite hard to get them on retainer, but you know, we were trying to build a sort of uh, steady flow of income. So that's what we went after. Uh, but the business model overall was quite interesting because the cost on our end in Toronto for a developer at the time, which was Flash Developer, was quite high 
compared to what the agencies were willing to pay. So we had to find alternative ways of producing these banners. And, uh, you know, we knew that there were online resources such as at the time Elance, Freelancer, and now Upwork that allowed you to recruit um, any type of talent and in this case, developers. So our idea was, we were thinking small at the time, was to hire a couple of developers online and then, you know, sell that, that talent on to our agency clients. Uh, but we soon realized that our, like the business was going to scale a lot faster than we intended. So we had to hire these people full time. And when we sent out feelers to different countries and different freelancers, we realized that one really stood out and that was the Philippines. And when we hired our, our first Filipino resource, we were just astounded by how great they were. They spoke perfect English, were extremely willing to work and very fast. And the cost was just, you know, mind-blowing compared to what we were paying in Toronto. Like, what was the delta between a Toronto developer, like, apples to apples comparison? Like, what would that have yeah. been? Well, at that time, which was, you know, almost eight years ago, I think, uh, we were paying about eight times cheaper for a developer wow. in the Philippines. Same quality of work. And, you know, we QA'd it with our, with our team and it was brilliant. Um, so what happened then is that, you know, we started giving this guy more and more work. He brought on a friend who he was working with. This guy was working at Google in the Philippines, developing these types of ads as well. He was a manager there. And we just had so much work that both of them couldn't handle it. So we asked them if they'd be willing to come full time with us. And they were quite hesitant. You can imagine their managers at Google. Why would they trust these two guys from Canada? They've never even met with this little shop called Candy Banners. So we just decided, you know, the next logical step was to fly out to the Philippines. Uh, neither of us, my business partner and I had been to Asia yet. So, you know, picked the, the next flight we could find that was a decent cost and landed in Manila. Um, super surprising city. I mean, there were a lot of pros and cons, but when we met these two guys, we realized it was a winning team. We made them an offer they couldn't refuse, set up a corporation there, got an office. And within two weeks, we were operational in the Philippines. Um, and from then on, we built a team of almost 50 developers, animators, and so on over the years. Five zero. Five zero. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So I've got so many questions about that. Um, why set up a separate legal structure in the Philippines? What's the backstory there? Well, the idea was to make them feel secure that, you know, they would have a contract with an entity locally that they could more or less enforce. Uh, it enabled us to get an office as well because um, the legislature and all of those things in the Philippines are a bit more complex, not for the better. Um, and so getting an office space required a legal entity. Um, we could have gone with a co-working, but the costs were exorbitant. Um, so yeah, that, that's the reason. Uh, it's funny enough that after uh, a few years in the Philippines, we decided to drop the legal entity and sort of work with our uh, developers and, and employees as freelancers. It was just a better structure for us. And it worked out during the acquisition because we didn't have to sell a second entity. And for the, like, the due diligence and all that, it made a lot more sense to hire a bunch of freelancers that we had a good track record with as opposed to get all these contracts and this uh, like legal entity moved over to the Canadian acquirer. That's really interesting. But but two or three years in, you had built the trust with the team locally in Manila right. that they knew who you were and knew where you weren't going to run out. More than it. trust. I mean, we'd given them such great benefits, including a very competitive salary that our attrition was extremely low. I mean, we had two guys leave in the span of three years 
And it was really for unrelated reasons. One had a family issue and had to move out of Manila and so on. So yeah, the trust was there, the track record. We had great leadership. The two guys that we hired initially became leaders of our team and it just all worked out really well. They basically (laughs) poached their entire team from Google. (laughs) Don't tell Google. How did you structure your relationship with your business partner? Where did that start? Did did you co-found it together? Did he come on later? What was the... Yeah, so um, my previous business, Stinson Design, um, I was running it out of offices in Toronto. And uh, Jan, who became my partner with Candy Banners, was essentially uh, subleasing his office space. And I was, you know, the, the, the one leasing it from him. So we got to know each other and work each, with each other. Uh, and essentially, we were on vacation kitesurfing in Dominican Republic. And I, I was seeing Jan working on these digital banners at night. And I was wondering, why is he putting on so much effort into it? We have, we're here vacationing. And he just told me a bit more about it and like what was going into it and how much he was charging. And a light bulb sort of, you know, went on. And I asked him, look, I'm in the process of selling Stinson Design. Would you be interested in building a new company around these banners that I don't know anything about? But clearly you seem to think there's merit in them. Uh, and he said, look, I'll trust you with building the business because you've done it. I'll, I've got some relationships with agencies. I know what work is involved and I have a creative background. So that's how we're going to split the tasks. And it worked out basically. How did you guys split the equity? 50-50. Hmm. Any cash in? Did either of you put money into the deal or? Very low. Yeah, basically a couple laptops. So, you know, it was very easy to build like a website, a couple laptops. We started reaching out to agencies. Uh, once we started getting contracts in, we did it at first, like he did the first few uh, projects. So we got cash flow coming in. And then we had a developer locally who was charging us and we were kind of bra- b- barely breaking even in Toronto with that. But then as soon as we started hiring in the Philippines, the cash flow was just kicking in and it was really fully bootstrapped, like very little money up front. Tell me about the cash flow because I, you know, I've worked with some agencies over the years, and and they can be full of really talented, creative people, and at the same time, they are terribly slow payers. They are they are infamous for stretching you to sixty to ninety, sometimes one hundred and twenty days. Like, did you run into the getting delayment delayed on your payments? How did you handle that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the agency world is brutal. Um, so we had a lot of those instances. Thankfully, some of the stronger partnerships we had with uh, some of the bigger agencies in Toronto and New York uh, were understanding of the size of our business. And we managed to get payments within 30 days, usually. Uh, but we did run into situations where, you know, we were looking at 120 days and still no sign of payments. Some agencies were completely dodging us. I mean, we, before selling, we had to really, you know, spend three, four months uh, recovering a lot of those uh, old debts. And some agencies were paying us about a year later once we we're really putting pressure on them. So it's partly on our on our end and our fault for not being more pushy. But I think, you know, when you're building a business and you're still relatively small, you're always worried about sort of um, deterring that relationship or deteriorating that relationship. My, my apologies. And, you know, getting more work and getting paid. So you have to juggle that. Um, But I highly recommend always, you know, 
pushing for to to get paid because without that without the cash flow the business doesn't exist so I, I, it's it's hard to tell what's the right yeah. way to take, do about it yeah, it's that delicate balance because you're right. I mean, if you push too hard, you lose a client. They're important to you. At the same time, no client's worth it if they're not paying you. So Correct. it's a very delicate balance. And at the same time, you had mouths to feed. So you you had you had to, in the best case scenario, you were paying your bills or you were getting paid 30 days after doing the work. When did you pay your team in Philippines? Was did you have to float that or did you pay that well, I mean, 60 days later? No, our, our team were basically on payroll essentially. So they would send us an invoice every month and we'd pay it immediately. Um, that's how we dealt with it. Uh, so it was sort of on us to make sure that we had enough float for, I was always on the very safe side. I would always try to have three to four months of payroll in our bank account in order to not have to worry about that. And did you have any sort of bank debt facility, like any line no, of credit at all? No, Nothing. I mean, we enabled the line of credit just for the sake of it because um, the bank we were banking with just gave it to us. So we said, you know, why not? But we never tapped into it. And I mean, for us, the beauty is that our mar our gross margins were so high that cash flow was easy to sort of um, absorb our payroll needs. So, yeah. So if you charge, like, what would you charge for a typical banner ad? So for a set of four, which is the, the standard, um, there are various sizes. It would range from two to four thousand Canadian dollars. Um, that it would include design, animation, and development. Because by the time um, you know HTML five became a thing, all of the banners were sort of animated in in HTML and CSS. And what would that cost you to get developed in Philippines? I mean, one developer could probably handle a set of four in a couple of days. So hard to estimate, but the, the gross margin on one of those projects, which these are the really basic, simple projects would be 80 to 90%, I'd say. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that helps you with the cash flow for sure. You're for really sure. Building up a so um, did you and Jan have any conversations about your future plans for the business? I mean, did you guys dream about selling it? Was this a built-to-sell kind of company from the beginning? Like, we're going to build it, we're going to sell it? Or was this a conversation that started to evolve over time? I mean, yeah. Like I, I mentioned earlier before our, our interview, the uh, built-to-sell book was sort of premise of this company. So we always knew that whatever we did, we had to sort of extract ourselves from operation so part of the initial few months of building this business was uh, creating a flowchart of every single operation in the company and how we would either automate it via technology or externalize it with human capital. Uh, and so basically, we didn't necessarily think we were going to sell it, but we wanted to put ourselves in a position where our business could cash flow and we could be working on something else or you know traveling or doing something that we enjoyed. Um, and both of us had the ambition of, of building a, a tech product down the road. So Candy Banners was essentially built as a sort of cash cow to finance our bigger dreams of building a tech tech product, which we, en we ended up doing, which in, in, it all worked out well. But we definitely built it around uh, removing ourselves from operations. How did you remove yourselves from the actual creative work? Because there's one thing, you know, here's how you post it to this 
a website hosting platform, or here's how you send the bill, or here's how you collect. It's another thing to be able to codify the creative process. Like how do you actually come up with a, a cool idea that's going to get clicks for customers? Like how did you codify that? So with agencies, they still have a lot of input, right? They have a brief that they've gotten approved from by the client before. Um, so when we come in, there's a lot of guidelines around what should be done. Uh, we don't necessarily come up with entire concepts. That's really their role. They, they're the strategic guys. So when our project managers, which were based in Toronto, uh, would talk to the project managers at agencies, th this creative brief would be established and like you know reviewed thoroughly so that our PMs who had a creative background would really understand what was required from our team. And they'd be able to communicate that to the team in the Philippines who, by the way, had good creatives, good animators, et cetera. Um, so it was a very clear process. We didn't have to be super creative on our end. We just had to make sure we understood the creative concept and applied it and Got did all it. the so QA, et cetera. That's super helpful. So you did the strategy piece was being done by the agency. You were more right. the technicians, the executors. That's good. But you took the view that you wanted it to run without you or Jan having to kind of run the show, run each project individually, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. I mean, both of us you know, enjoyed working on it while we did, but there was always an end in sight. And I think that helped. And, and it helped in, in more than just you know, making us suffer through it, which it wasn't. It was more always thinking proactively, how can we make this process better? How can we automate that? And if you saw the machine that was Candy Banners, it was basically a, a bunch of different systems built in together, whether it was APIs that our tech guys were building or using software like Zapier to connect all of our different solutions, just to make sure that our team had to do as little as possible when it came to transferring data from one point to the other or you know, automating processes, basically. That's super helpful. Had you and Jan started to develop some notion of what candy banners might be worth? Like, were you having conversations about what are companies like candy banners getting in the marketplace? Did you start to think for about sure. that? Yeah, for sure. So um, interestingly enough, after a few years, we had a very minor falling out, uh, which happens a lot with business partners. And we thought, you know, it was just not going to work out. So we wanted to sell. Um, so we went to an M&A firm or like small advisory firm um, to ask them for help here in Toronto. And uh, they, we, we went through the whole exercise of figuring out the valuation, the buyers and things like that. And what we were getting at the time, uh, because it was still a service business, we had a lot of, you know, growth. So it helped. But essentially, we were looking at four and a half to five and a half times EBITDA. So, you know, not bad. Uh, depends how you look at it. If you really want to get out quickly, that's that's a pretty good payday. The problem we faced when we went through this exercise was uh, the couple of buyers that we were able to sort of get interested within a short time frame all wanted to buy us in 100% in stock, which was, you know, not, not great, um, especially since one of them was not public, so we didn't really know what the timelines would be to get any sort of value from the deal. Uh, and we're glad we sort of held off because a year later when uh, we ended up, well, a year later when our a real acquisition offer came in from one of our clients, 
uh, that ended up working really well for us, not only because, you know, the, the EBITDA was around the same thing, around five, uh, five, five times, or the multiple was around five times EBITDA, sorry. But uh, it was almost an all-cash deal. So 70, 70% cash up front and 30% on earnout on a one-year earnout. But, you know, all-cash is better than stock deal somehow. Yeah, 100%. So let me go right up to the top. I'd be remiss to ask, what was the trigger that led to a falling out between you and Jan? Uh, I mean, it was personal. It's hard to explain, but basically personal affairs sort of interfering with the business or at least risking to interfere. And um, yeah, a lack of transparency. I don't know. It was a time where the business was booming and both of us didn't have our head fully in the business and that sort of created clashes essentially. Yeah. How fast were you growing? Top line? I mean, pretty fast. Uh, I think the business, we had it for five years before we sold it. We were easily grow. I mean, the first few years don't really count, right? You're growing at a really incredible speed. But the last three years, we were growing at about 100% each year. Wow. So doubling every year, yeah. And so what did you get to in terms of top line? Uh, seven figures. Uh, I can't get into too much because the deal was sort of impacted by that. But yeah, in, in the seven figures. No problem. So your, your top line into the seven figures. Um, so the original round, you were sort of four and a half to five and a half was sort of what you were you right. were hearing from the marketplace, but mm -hmm. but a large part of that, if not all of it, in stock, Correct. was what was on offer, and 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 of course, you know, there's no liquidity in a privately held company other than when the owners decide to create no. liquidity. And the second one was a public company, but some sort of shell, you know, one of those acquisitions where they acquire a listed company as a shell. It just seems sketchy, like. No, I, I think we checked the stock price a year later and it just tanked. So we're glad we didn't take that deal either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How did you reconcile with Dion? How did you come to? Sometimes just time and like focus. And in my opinion, time heals all. So uh, time did help a lot. And we talked and the business was going well. And we felt a sense of responsibility for our team in the Philippines. Like there was no way we would just like let them down. Uh, they were like family. We traveled there three, four times a year each, whether it was together or separately. And that just kept us going. I mean, we were motivated to like knowing that we were feeding all these people and, you know, we were helping not only them, but their families. When you pay Filipinos that much, you know that they're the, they're sort of the ones taking care of their parents and their siblings. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Philippines too much, but they usually like the, the, you know, uh, the middle class and lower classes can only afford to send one person to school, usually the eldest. And the responsibility that comes with that is that they have to finance and support the rest of their family after that when they have a job. So the more we could pay them, the more they could help their family. So that, that really kept us going. Hmm. That sense of obligation, mm -hmm. that must have weighed heavy at times. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It did. Uh, and it's just like the most unlucky country in the world. They get all these typhoons and stuff. So we had to live vicariously through all of these different hardships. Um, so that's yeah, pretty tough. Yeah. What did you do between the time you were getting these all 
stock offers and the actual final cash offer? Like walk me through that year of your life. Did you shop the business more aggressively? Did they kind of come to you? What happened? No, look, so after that happened, we sort of gave up on selling and we realized, well, you know, we're getting a very decent cash flow. Both of us can live very comfortably and sort of invest in other ventures if we want to. Uh, and at that point, we had, you know, as I mentioned, separated ourselves from the business quite a bit, thanks to the original systems we had put in place. And Tim, are you are you scraping cash out of the business at this point? Yep. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So, so we may, we're keeping three to four months of float, and then the rest every three or four months, like I think quarterly, we would just take out a dividend, and that was basically it. And, and give me a sense: Are we talking quarterly, like? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. No, it was it was six figure every time, like each. Wow, so you're you're really kind of carving off the top oh, yeah. of the layer here. You have top layer. Totally. Of cream. Yeah, yeah, we we invested our growth, but it was very organic. Um, we didn't want to blow it up, basically. Like the business could have been much bigger, but it was just never what we wanted to do for the next ten years, and that mm-hmm. sort of helped our, our mindset, uh, sort of not push it as hard as we could have because we wanted to get out and do something else. And was there also a sentiment in your mind that the technology made change? Like AI Absolutely. is talking about, you know, like taking over the world, the robots are taking over the world. Like at some point, presumably the technology changes and that cro- did that cross your mind? Oh, at all? all the time. That was our biggest fear. Um, as we were working on the business, there were all these platforms that were popping up where you just had to upload a design like a PSD, like a layered design of your of your asset, and it would automatically animate it and output it in HTML5, basically rendering us completely obsolete. So we were constantly worried about that. Uh, and as you may like, as you know, as an entrepreneur, when a big client sort of lets you go, your entire mood tanks and you feel it's the end of the world and like that's it for the business. Never ever happens. There's always a need, but we were always feeling that, and. Essentially, after the, um, the, the process you know, didn't, didn't pan out and we refused the offers, we decided to keep it as a cash cow and thought it might die eventually. That's what happened. And in the meantime, we had started this company in the Philippines, TendoPay, which is a completely different product, uh, very consumer-facing, etc. But during the time we were working on TendoPay and we're completely detached from Candy Banners, it was still running and, and working well. We got an email from one of our clients at Candy Banners that said they were really happy with our work and they were trying to branch out into production, which is what we did. And they were curious if we were interested in selling. That was amazing. So then that reopened the whole discussion about selling. And uh, it, was a, it was a pretty quick process. In, like initially, the due diligence took, a, I think, three months. Well, do, um, do, do, I just want to pause, press pause sure. before we get into due diligence. So... This is cool. So you get this email from yep. a client. Out of we've nowhere. done 300 plus episodes of Built Cell Radio. I don't think we've ever had a situation, I'd have to go back, none comes to mind at least, of an entrepreneur selling to one of their clients. And I can imagine this being a fairly complicated situation because A, they're a client, B, they're in the industry, C, you want to keep them as a client regardless of the negotiation comes. How big a client was this relative as a percentage of your overall revenue? I'll tell you, that's the surprising part because Jan 
hits me up one day. I was in the Philippines and he was in Toronto still like I was working on Tendopay. And he says, hey, this this company is interested in buying us. I'm like, oh, who are they? He's like, well, we did a couple projects for them, you know. So they were a very small client of ours at the time. Less I didn't even know the name. <laughs> that, like that's how it was. Hmm. So, yeah, like I wasn't too scared about the impact on the business. And it was a very friendly conversation with the founders from the get go. So even if it didn't work out, it seemed like, you know, we'd be in good terms. It it wasn't very, um, yeah, it wasn't very worrying. And what did you have that they wanted? Because presumably, you know, a relatively large and good at advertising agency could could hire a team in Philippines relatively easily. What is it that you had that they placed value in? So what I realized after the fact is, sure, they, they were happy to buy cash flow and, and, you know, buy a production team, but they were really keen on building their ad ops uh, team. And What's they ad ops mean? Uh, advertising operations. So it's like people managing campaigns and things like that. And they were keen on doing that. And they realized that the Philippines had very talented people and very cost efficient, where we had been four years or five years before that. And their idea was to leverage what we had learned in building a, a structure and, and a team in the Philippines and build their own team of ad ops people similarly in the Philippines and, and save costs, et cetera. So they wanted to buy our knowledge as well as the cash flow from the business. That was really the idea. That's helpful for sure. So they reach out with this unsolicited email that Jan gets. When, when Jan called you or emailed you, what was your reaction to that? I mean, I was dubious because uh, we, you know, we had tried selling before and it didn't work. So I, I wasn't expecting much. And I told them, look, there's no risk. And in, in, like, we, we, can, we can ask them what they're thinking about, uh, what type of valuations. We can just start the process. It doesn't cost anything uh, or not much, at least on our end, a bit of time, etc. So I just, I got excited and I told them, let's run with it and see what happens. Where does it go from there? Well, like I said, it was a fairly quick process. Uh, we had a few calls with the owners to try to understand exactly what they were trying to achieve to make sure that it was a fit because, of course, they knew us as a, as a client, um, client provider relationship, but not much else. So they wanted to understand more in depth the size of our team. Uh, it was actually surprising they knew we were in the Philippines. So I'm not sure how that discussion happened uh, upstream, but most of our clients never bothered to ask and they thought we were all Toronto-based. Did you so, hide that fact? Like, no, did you we actively never, hide it? No, we didn't actively hide it, but we never promoted it either. Meaning, you know, our, our project managers were in Toronto. They were the ones interacting with the agencies. And unless the agency asked, are all your staff in Toronto? We would say, no, we have a team in, in the Philippines as well. Um, but that was, that was about it. And that was maybe 1% of people asked it, right? So anyways, back to the story. Um, these guys knew about the Philippines story and they were very eager to learn more and to understand how we did it and like the backstory, etc. But once the deal started and we got the LOI, um, essentially they did a very quick but thorough due diligence. I think it, it lasted two or three months. But then the story sort of took a, a side turn and uh, COVID happened and essentially everything shut down and they said, hey, you know, in light of what's going on, we're going to put this deal on hold uh, because we don't know what's going to happen with your business, with our business. Everyone was freaked out, as you know, and the deal fell through basically at first. 
Uh, and they said, look, let's keep talking over the next few months. But for now, consider this deal dead. Um, so back to the drawing board online. But again, no feelings hurt because it was unexpected. And, you know, if it's unexpected, you can't really be too too sad about it. What was the LOI for uh, uh, like a multiple of, of profit? Like what were they offering? Yeah, so it, it was just shy of five times EBITDA. And, and again, 70, 30, 70 cash, 30 earn out? Right. So that's what we negotiated. Essentially, we like a lot of the discussions during due diligence were around understanding why the founders didn't want to be a part of the earnout. Like we did not want to work at the company if, the, if we got acquired. That was almost like our first priority or our first prerogative is to not have to work for the acquirer. Even for a small period of time, we gave them three months of consulting post acquisition to sort of make sure that the transition was smooth, but that was it. And essentially, once we managed to convince them of how detached we were from the company, uh, they really monitored our day-to-day work and the interactions with the team to see if what we were saying was true. And How did they monitor they, that? Well, they were looking at emails, Slack. They were at, uh, interviewing the teams, sort of understanding the process from customer to production and QA and back to customer and understanding where do these founders fit in and are they required anywhere in the operations? Um, so at that point, I was mainly focusing on you know, accounting, which anyone could do, just we're saving costs by me doing it. And Jan was sort of managing the day-to-day questions from the team, but more like technical questions, some things that anyone could have answered, but Jan was the go-to since inception. So they were just used to asking him a few questions around creative or technical. So um, you're so- saying, if, if I just want to make sure I understand. So you're saying, uh, hey, we want 100% of our cash at closing. We're not involved in the business. We got other projects we want to work on. And they're saying, oh, no, no, like we've never bought a creative shop where the assets are human capital without yes. an earnout and a big earnout. And you're like, no, no, but we're not involved. And so, in order to pressure test your case, they're checking Slack, they're checking email, they're looking, they're interviewing, they're trying mm-hmm. to say, like, is this for real? Like, are these guys really not involved? Yep. Am, I, am I interpreting that right? You're 100% right. And they they took like actual projects and they wanted to be involved from the beginning of the project from when we received the brief all the way to delivering the assets and seeing where we had been involved. And like, once we can prove that there's no involvement at all, they can't ask for an earnout. It just doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? So I do. So the letter of intent, I'm assuming the original LOI was a higher proportion earnout than 7030. What was the original proposal? I'm trying to remember how much negotiation we did. There was not that much negotiation. So I I don't remember exactly what it was, but we might have even taken the first deal. Like it was just perfect. They, they were very fair with what they gave. Uh, we were happy with the valuation. We were happy with the, the percentages. Uh, the only condition on the earnout was that we would meet or the company would meet the same revenue, um, the same revenue as the prior year. Um, so it wasn't too ambitious either. That's the easiest earnout I've ever heard of. That's amazing. I know. So it was, it was <laughs> like, like I said, these guys were very fair. We got along and we still meet each other, uh, to talk about stuff. So no, they're That's very like cool. a flat. A flat out or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. That's amazing. So well, they just wanted to make sure that the business would collapse and like they'd still yeah. be on the hook, you know. That's awesome. So you, so a very easy earnout threshold to hit, meaning mm-hmm. just keep the revenue where it was. And 
And if I'm under, again, I want to get to the COVID story in a moment, but before I do, you were, you had made the case successful that you and Neon were not part of the ongoing business, that you were going to agree to a three month consulting transition period where you would mm -hmm. act as a consultant, but at no point did you agree to work full time in the business. That's correct. That's helpful. And at the same time, I'm wondering, how did you get comfortable with putting so much of your proceeds, 30%, kind of at risk, if you will, in air quotes, without being employed by the company, being able to control the process? Like, how did you, like, did you think, oh, like, I'm not going to be able to affect the earnout now that I'm not an employee of the company? Yeah, that's a good question. And we thought about it a lot. Um, to be fair, like the, the main, the management we had put in place, we trusted them. Uh, we knew they had really great relationships with our clients. Uh, we just trusted that the company was in good shape and that the relationships were there to sustain at least one year of revenue. So there was a bit of trust, of course, but the pros of being able to sell and generating this cash flow to be put to good use and then potentially losing 30% of the deal outweighed just not selling it all. That's helpful. Tell me the COVID story. So you come to terms, get a couple minutes to due diligence, and then COVID hits, the whole world yep. shuts down. What next? So the deal falls through and we don't think anything of it. Um, they do. So what's interesting is they were added to our accounting software on QuickBooks. And we never bothered to remove them because I guess we forgot. It was part of the due diligence and we had forgotten that they were on it. So they sort of told us that they would keep monitoring us for the next few months to see how things were going to go. And uh, basically, we lost about 30% of our revenue, just like most of the industry did. But very quickly, we managed to recover. So within six months, we were back to close to 100% of pre-COVID. So that was very encouraging. And they reached out again and said, hey, uh, seems like you guys are doing okay. Like, tell us about how you recovered from COVID and this and that. And, and we were surprised. We're like, okay, these guys still want to talk and it's not completely dead as they, they mentioned. Um, so within a month after that, they made another offer. Um, we, we reassured them that, look, COVID was going to boost e-commerce and advertising spend was going to be, you know, quite high, especially with banners. And that made, like the whole story made sense. So they made another offer and they made a COVID attempt, meaning they tried to lowball us a little bit compared to the original offer. Uh, because we, your EBITDA was down because of... Yeah, it had gone down, but it was back up. I mean, it was, yeah, trailing, it was down, but like forward, it was going to be same. So, Trailing 12 months, it was down, but for, yeah, yeah, that's right. Got it helpful. Yeah. Yep. But uh, we stood our ground and said, look, we don't want to be lowballed. We understand that COVID has affected everyone, but we don't think it's something that's going to last too long or, you know, forever. Um, so we'd rather keep like the company and see what you want to do in six to 12 months. And they came back and gave us another offer, which was really just shy of what the previous offer was. And we said, yes. And that's how it worked out. Got it. That's super helpful. So you took the position that COVID was a one-off sort of black swan event and that mm -hmm. you should take our profitability as it is, you know, annualize it at least from where it is today, project it out in the future, but don't retroactively look at the last 12 months. That's unfair. That's right. 
and you got that case effectively sold. And again, the 70-30 deal, 70 cash. Yep, same deal. Yeah. Got it. And did you guys get the URL? Did that come to fruition? Yep, we got it. Uh, must have been sure. last, like a few months ago, not, not too long ago, maybe March. I'm trying to remember the timelines here. But yeah, we got the full payout. Congratulations. It sounds Thank like a, a, a fantastic sort of storybook ending to, uh, to this <laughs> business. I'd love, to through, I'd love to take you through a little lightning round of quick questions that just require a quick answer. Are you up for that? Sure, let's, let's do it. All right. So what was the slimiest trick somebody tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? And I'll invite you to go back to you know, the original few iterations where you were getting stock offers, and that, that entire landscape. So if you think about it, what was yeah, the slimiest I mean, trick? I don't know if you can call it slimy trick, but the fact that they were giving us a very high valuation all in stock with like a very bad track record or like no track record on their stock price, et cetera. To me, it was a bit slimy because basically they were buying income with for free, essentially. They were issuing stock that had no real intrinsic value. Uh, we were locked into that stock for a year or so. So it could have gone to zero, but they would have bought the income for almost free. So I would shy away from those deal in the future, like if they ever come or, you know, cross my path again. Um, that was that was very tricky. And we didn't know any better. Like at first we got excited because of high valuation, right? But then our advisor said, look, this is an all stock deal, et cetera. You'd never know what could happen. And then we realized these guys buy income for almost free. That's how they yeah. do it. And, and what was the multiple of earning they were claiming that they were going to spend? They, they valued us as a tech company because we did have a lot of technology that was proprietary. Um, so they were like flattering us with something like eight or nine, nine times EBITDA. Wow. Okay. Biggest mistake you made in retrospect, as you look back on the process of selling your company, like if you think about it from the standpoint of the first original sort of fallout with Yawn to mm -hmm. just getting the earn out, what was the biggest mistake you made in that process? Well, I'd say, um, you know, I've read your, your other book, Automatic Customer as well. And to me, building sort of um, automated income or like more structured sort of uh, income through retainers with agencies would have been much more helpful for the selling process because a lot of the discussions and the due diligence were around how deep our relationships with the agencies were and how we could prove that we would have contracts going forward. And that's very hard to prove. Um, like this is when they started questioning our relationship like as founders with the agencies and whether those relationships would go away once we sold. So having a retainer in place with all these agencies would have helped greatly because it, it sort of guarantees potentially some income in the like foreseeable future. And that's something that we didn't put enough effort on. Uh, it was always in the back of our mind, but like we discussed earlier, we always want to sort of nurture that relationship and not do anything that could uh, sort of hurt it. So we never brought those questions up too much or like we didn't push our agencies to sign retainers as much as we should have. <clears throat> but again, we weren't necessarily sure we were going to sell and we just didn't make it a priority. Mm -hmm. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the sale of your company? 
during the official sale of our company, I'd say when COVID hit, of course, even though we didn't expect to sell the business, we, we shouldn't have been affected that much. But when you're presented with a certain amount on paper that you might be able to pocket in the next year or so, uh, you get quite excited. You automatically start making plans and having that taken away, even though it's not no fault of yours, uh, kind of hurts. So, you know, we talked with Jan and we got up from it quickly, but both of us were kind of devastated because we had already made these plans in our head. And and not only emotionally devastated by that, but also you've got the specter of this, you know, terrible disease that at that time, mm. nobody knew sort of how serious it was, who it was affecting most gravely. And yep. so you've got all that to deal with and process along with, you know, this business that had that or the yeah, let's say that that didn't help. Uh, I'd say my my first few months of COVID would have been a lot sweeter if the deal had been signed and I knew I had that waiting for me. So both of them hitting at the same time was pretty dreadful. Yeah, uh, and I was in the yeah. Philippines at the time, and we were on like house lockdown, so we were stuck in a condo with my wife for three months. Had to show a police certificate to leave the condo once a week to do groceries. It was pretty <gasps> intense. Yeah. Wow. That is literally house arrest. Oh, it is. Yeah, it was. Wow. It was wild. Wow. Um, what, what was the highest point you reached emotionally during the sale of your company? Um, well, you know, I, I had sold another one before, so I had you know gotten the big check before. But it's always nice getting a check and like cashing it. And did you get feels, a physical piece of paper? I'm trying to remember if we got a check. I think we did actually. Yeah, because I wasn't actually. Uh, let me think. <laughs> I know the earn out portion, we got a wire, but no, the first part, we got a check. Yeah. Physical check. Yeah. Old school. Old agency style. All of our clients paid by check, so it made sense. What did you do with the check? Cashed it in. I took a photo and cashed it in. My, I must have it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, resources that you you use to get yourself ready to go through the process of selling? Like, was there a course, a conference, uh, anything that you educated yourself using to get ready to sell your company? I mean, I'm an avid blog reader. So whether it's YouTube or blogs, I'll try to read everything I can find on a topic. Um, Anyone that you really like in terms of bloggers or that you could recommend? Top of my head for selling a business, I mean... I, yeah, I can't think of anything. I usually just Google it and like, I don't have a specific resource for, for one topic. Uh, I'll just find whatever is available and skim through it. But um, yeah, I mean, YouTube was very helpful. Um, and I was also um, sort of advised because at the time for my, for TendoPay, we were in, in an accelerator and it was an operator accelerator, meaning the founders are, are all operators and um, they've got experience selling businesses. So I, I do remember talking to them and kind of getting some advice. So that was really helpful as well. That's great. And trophy that you bought yourself to commemorate the win. Yeah. So I got a watch. Um, I got a watch and a condo. Kind of I mean, yeah. Uh, AP. I don't no, know. Auto, AP. Auto, Audemar Piguet. It's a, I, it's a type familiar. of watch. It's a nice watch. It's just. Just a stupid thing, like materialistic, but it felt nice. 
What was it about that that the watch signifies for you? Why was that important to you? Well, okay, so I don't come from a very wealthy family and I always kind of enjoyed seeing wealthy families where the father would pass along something to the kid and my dad passed along like culture and a lot of great things, but I always thought it was cool to pass along like a watch with an engraving to your kid in the future. Uh, And I wanted to be able to do that and to motivate my future kids to do some great things and just build sort of a tradition and family heritage, I guess. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great, uh, a great, you know, a great uh, tradition to start in your family. And you're now going to be the first to uh, hopefully pass on the watch to uh, for many generations to come. Tell me about, you mentioned TendoPay a couple mm-hmm. of times, just briefly, 30 sure. seconds. What is TendoPay and describe that for me? So yeah, it's a, it's a product uh, based out of Southeast Asia. So we're a fintech uh, focused on the Philippines market. We're offering financial employee benefits to local Filipino companies. Um, mostly, you know, loan products, uh, insurance products, things that their employees don't have access to by traditional lenders or traditional uh, financial institutions. We're building the ecosystem where they can access those premium premium services uh, as if, you know, they were premium customers that are acknowledged by the financial system in the Philippines. It's a very complicated system over there. Yeah, I've, I've heard. Well, that's helpful. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Sure. And Tim, where can people reach you if they want to learn more about you or want to connect with you on social? What's the best place to do? Yep. It? So uh, I'm on Twitter, Tim Grassin. Uh, LinkedIn is super useful, but it's my French uh, name, Timothe. So T-I-M-O-T-H-E, Grassin, G-R-A-S-S-I-N. And yeah, I'm available by email as well, tgrassin at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll put all that in the show notes at builttosell.com. Tim, thanks for doing this. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for that book. It really inspired me. (laughs) You're welcome. All right. Appreciate it. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Tim Grasson. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms used, visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you're not subscribed to the podcast and you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to Built to Sell Radio. And if you're a supporter of the show and want to help see the show continue to grow and succeed, it would be amazing if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you're able to leave a rating and review for the show. So again, I will share a link to how to do that in the show notes section, which again can be found over at builttocell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.